gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And we have Wendy Alsup with us, and we're trying to figure out if this is her third or fourth time. And uh, she has a new book called I Forgive You, Finding Peace and Moving Forward When Life Really Hurts. And I actually kind of felt like in a little bit, it went with your last book, just in kind of talking about some of the things that you've you've been through. Her last book, I'll, I can link that episode in the episode notes if you haven't read it. It's about suffering. Excellent excellent book. But Wendy, why don't you share just a little bit about yourself uh, and why you wrote this book? Yeah, thank you, Colleen. Um, Yeah, so I teach uh, math at our local community college. I am divorced, not something I wanted, but something that was put upon me and God has been kind in it, but it has not been without its emotional struggles. I um, a single mom to my 15 and 17 year old sons. And um, if folks listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, you know that I have um, a history there. So these um, have all been catalysts to my thought process and my own wrestling with forgiveness and reconciliation and what is the responsibility of the one who was harmed what is the responsibility of the one who did the harm? And most of all, I've really been thinking a lot about the difference in forgiveness and reconciliation, why those are often treated as the same thing, but they are absolutely in scripture, not the same thing. So these experiences have kind of come together to, to motivate me to think about this, this stuff. 
Um, thanks for sharing that. I really enjoyed the book. Um, of course, I really enjoyed your last thanks. book too. So um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I know you've been on at least twice because I remember the last one when I was part yeah. of that interview. Um, one of the things I liked is you kind of used as your framework for the book was Joseph's story from Genesis. And I kind of wondered, why did you pick Joseph in particular to be the framework? Well, my pastor preached a series through Joseph's life, and um, he really drew out in a beautiful way that I had not clearly seen before. You know, I knew about Joseph's forgiveness, but but Joseph's story demonstrates more than forgiveness. It definitely demonstrates reconciliation too, but it also demonstrates true repentance. And I found the story of Judah in Genesis 37 through 15 as compelling as Joseph's story because Judah was a horrible person, a horrible abuser. And he has this 180 degree change that um, I just found mesmerizing, almost like Saul to Paul. And um, so I thought it was a beautiful thing uh, how my pastor had had drawn out the, the path of reconciliation to involve repentance and confession of sin. And we see that with Joseph's brothers. It involves forgiveness. We see that with Joseph. And all these things feed together toward reconciliation. Um, and then the other thing I really love about Joseph's story is the focus on his emotions that were not. Uh, we we can try to make him into a superhero, but scripture really reveals that he he greatly struggled. These were not, he was not overcoming nonstop with a superficial type of joy. He really felt in the years, even when he's at a, a better point, he's, he's really weeping. All of the scenes of weeping are actually when he's like second in command. So I just thought that was really powerful to see how much he still hurt how much he had been harmed and that scripture doesn't gloss over that. What is ambiguous loss and how does it help us in our discussions about forgiveness? Ambiguous loss is a term that psychologists have recently started to use more. And it tends to refer to losses that don't have a traditional culturally accepted way of grieving And a lot of the situations would be like maybe someone's physically present, but emotionally absent. So um, in the case of someone with dementia or parent with Alzheimer's, spouse with Alzheimer's, their their body is still there, but their mind is going. And, And maybe someone would say, well, you know, I lost my husband in a heart attack. And so you should be thankful that at least he's still here. But there is a loss to to the the, the wife of someone with the Alzheimer's that, or, or a degenerative disease or something that's slowly taking your loved one away that we just we don't necessarily have a, a set way to think through it and grieve it quite like we do other types of, of more clear-cut losses where there is emotional absence and physical absence. Those tend to be a little bit more clear in society. That really, uh, the concept of ambiguous loss and how you described it really uh, resonated with me. Um, you know, my mother has Alzheimer's and it's 
not great. Um, and I, I really do. So sorry. Thank you. It really is that kind of, you know, watching someone slowly be erased. She's there, right? It's my mom, but she's right. not there at the same time. And, you know, it's very different from, you know, the, the grieving that I've been through, like when I've lost my grandparents or, you know, even when there was a finality to like a, a, a relationship that was over, you know, there's, there's things and ways of, of marking those completion that other types of loss are much more um, drawn out. And I think, you know, especially in the last two years uh, of all of the things that we could say, uh, the various losses that we've experienced in our lives and our, our habits in our work and day to day, I think ambiguous loss really encompasses a lot for many people right now. Yes, I really think so. I think it's a, it was very helpful to me also through my, with my divorce. That's, that's when I was first mm-hmm. exposed to a concept because there was just a, a weird set of emotions that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And um, that, that phrase just really helped me understand like this low level underlying thing that's in the background of my 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 life every day but I didn't know exactly how to express it but like you said with COVID with uh, all kinds of spiritual and political unrest right now I think a lot of us are in this place where we have a lot of loved ones that are physically present but we don't know them anymore like we don't recognize them anymore Um, and, and that's one that I really find hard. So I have a loved one. They're still there, but it seems like we think so differently in it. And it feels like we used to think alike or spiritual leaders. And I thought, I thought we agreed. I mean, this is the hard one for me. It was at hard at Mars Hill. I thought we agreed on these sets of binding theological scriptural truths and then to wake up one day and realize they're still there, but wow, we are seeing this so, so differently. It is so disconcerting, and and we do need to mourn it, but sometimes we don't even realize what it is we need to mourn. You know, I, uh, I think, too, that I know for myself and, and for many, probably many people who are listening to this, who've been through, you know, difficult church situations at various places. Um, you know, obviously not in our current church, but in, in the past and, you know, growing up as a pastor's daughter, there's, there's a lot of that, those kinds of bad church situations and, and the complicated emotions that go along with it. Um, and you write a lot about, uh, forgiveness in context with, with the, uh, with Marcel and your experiences there. Um, how did that influence your understanding of forgiveness, that experience? Well, it made me realize how important um, confession of sin and repentance are to ultimate reconciliation. But it also helped me understand that forgiveness forgiveness is a really personal thing. And I really think when I talk about it in the book, I used a little bit of Desmond Tutu's um, definitions, but a letting go of my um, right 
to extract revenge. And that's really where I was so for a while, or I had to let go at Mars Hill is that I wanted to make it right. And that involved Mark's humiliation, you know? And, and so what I had to do is let go of rights or power to humiliate or destroy verbally would be the only way I could do it. Um, and let God really believe that vengeance was God. And that would, that's not the same as letting, like one thing I felt very strongly, that's not the same as letting that person continue to harm, but letting go uh, or, or taking myself out of the path of revenge so that true, just consequences could occur by God's hand and whatever authorities did. And eventually, man, it took us a long time, but eventually the authorities that were in Mark's so-called spiritual authorities did eventually discipline him. But um, I had to take myself out of the equation of any kind of retribution or revenge. I had to let go of that and instead pray for true, just, um, actions against him and also work that didn't mean I couldn't work toward ending how he harmed others. So it's nuanced, but I think it's important that we think through the nuances um, because these matter. Scripture talks about it in a nuanced way that matters. Yeah, I think the subject is so misunderstood. Can you talk about the steps of forgiveness and within that talk about why um, recognition of sin is vital as part of that? Well, I would say that the recognition of sin is vital to reconciliation, but I definitely think we can forgive without someone recon- recognizing their sin. We can't be reconciled to them. And that's the big difference. So Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Stephen says similar when he's being murdered. And I think that's kind of the power of what um, the families of the Emmanuel Nine did when they forgave Dylan Roof at um, that hearing. Now, what they weren't doing is saying, Dylan, that was it was okay. Or they weren't saying, government, please don't execute right justice on him. They're not saying, let's let him go do it again. But these are none of the things of what forgiveness, their forgiveness of him meant. But I, but they let go of their right to verbally humiliate him. They let go of um, a desire to... Um, exact retribution. They're not going to walk in with a gun. They're not going to run at him. They're not going to threaten him, forgive him, but th- but they're not reconciling him because there's no, to this day, no awareness or willingness to admit his own sin in it. So I think we definitely can forgive when someone doesn't recognize their sin. We cannot be reconciled with them though. You know, making that um which is a really great distinction. Um, going so going along with that, what does real repentance look like, and does it always happen in relationships? It definitely doesn't always happen in relationships. That's mm-hmm. the sad truth on this side mm-hmm. of heaven. 
But I thought Judah's example was really beautiful because, you know, in Judah, Judah's the one who instigated the whole situation with Joseph being thrown into the pit. And then at the end of the story, you have this moment where Judah shows back up and then Joseph insists, he he manipulates circumstances so that they have to bring Benjamin to him. And um, my thought is, I wonder if he's afraid still that his brothers haven't changed and he's concerned that Benjamin may not be safe either. Maybe first to prove that they didn't do the same thing to Benjamin, sell him into slavery. And then second, to protect him in case they were thinking about it at that point. But whatever his motives were, that's just my suspicion. When they get there, he plants the silver in Benjamin's bag and then sets up the situation where he says, all right, well, Benjamin's going to have to stay as my slave. He's going to become my slave. And Judah says, no, take me in his place. Please, we cannot do that. Please take me in his place. And that, that's what repentance is because it's a 180 degree change from the heinous act he did before. So instead, he, instead of pushing the brother into slavery, Judah gets in between the brother and slavery and um, doesn't just change doesn't just say please don't do that he actually puts his body in the way and that's what you know we use the word repair sometimes i think that in that situation really repaired something in joseph's heart because judah now was willing to take the place and pay the price in order to try to fix what he had done the harm he had brought upon the family when he sold Joseph into slavery, he's willing to sacrifice himself to not bring that harm a second time. Uh, adding on to that, um, what does true forgiveness look like? I think true forgiveness really is when we are ready to leave vengeance to God. And we're, we're ready to hope for the repentance of the one who did the wrong. I think most of us, when we've been harmed, and I struggle with this post Morris Hill, just wanting accountability and discipline. But do I want for Mark Driscoll true repentance? And forgiveness says, I'm hoping not for revenge. I'm hoping for repentance. I want to see change. And that's a good indicator in our hearts, I think. Um, do we want them to see them destroyed or do we want to see them changed? And, and you know, there's no way we can do it without really having a grasp of how God has changed us or having an awareness of, you know, really, for me, I have an awareness of what I am capable of. And that. And what God has saved me from, I have a lot of humiliation about my own sin and the, my, the own, my own spiritual abuse that I participated in while I was at Mars Hill, for instance. And that equips me to be thankful for what the Lord did for me, how he has forgiven me, and also be thankful that certain temptations God hasn't put in my way. 
I'm not totally convinced how I would respond if certain temptations have been put in my way. And then that, that letting go of our right to retribution, that's, I think, the real key of what forgiveness is. So you mentioned earlier about Emmanuel uh, AME and how they uh, forgave uh, Dylan Roof and, and how it was in context of, you know, still seeking justice and, um, and hoping for repentance. And I was thinking about uh, in reading it in your book too, it made me think about uh, when Rachel uh, Den Hollander talked, uh, spoke at the end of the Larry Nasser trial and you know, she called yes. him to repentance and she spoke of her willingness to forgive him and her, and her hope for him, as well as, you know, she clearly right. was seeking justice um, you know, and through the legal system um, for his behavior. So how does justice fit in to our discussions about forgiveness? Well, I think that we recognize from Christ's death on the cross that there has to be justice. There has to be the payment of sin. But there is also the second aspect of someone who is abused or harmed And that's that we not allow them to harm others. So I think the two play together. You have a a legal system of justice. um, And then you also just have a just society does not allow someone to continue to harm others. And I'm, I'm not a, I'm actually really against the death penalty personally, which maybe that makes me a flaming liberal, but but really, I think the, the end goal of the justice system is to keep people from harming others. Um, and it, that's a helpful way for me to think about it. And also, it's a helpful way for me to remember what my obligation is. So if I want to forgive someone, um, and you, you look at someone who has harmed many people, I want to forgive Mark Driscoll who has spiritually abused many, many, many people. It is extremely important that I separate my desire to forgive him from anything that would pave a way or enable him to continue his harm against others. And I think if we keep those two separate and realize what that those are not the same thing, it helps us to see forgiveness in a little bit clearer form. So you've you've talked a little bit throughout this about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. But what are some situations where reconciliation might be especially hard or maybe even impossible in this life? I think that certainly when we get into um, abusive situations with a power differential, a child and a parent. Um, especially if you get into a sexual situation, you you get into a place where even if the other person repents, there there needs to be a lot of wisdom and nuance in how you introduce a relationship back between a repentant abuser and the one who has been abused. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that there is hope for a parent who has sinned against a child in a heinous way that if they see their sin, then they repent. But there always has to be a vision of a reconciliation. If we're going to reconcile, that does not put the abuser in a place to be tempted to harm again. 
but most certainly does not put the one who harm was harmed in a vulnerable position to be abused again. And I think that's that's pastorally a place that we just need to be wise and really, really careful. We want repentance of an abuser. We we want to keep those who have been harmed safe. I think that's a, a good distinction. And I, I think too, from several of the, the sources that I've read on, on these types of situations that someone who is truly repentant will understand that those kinds of restored um, access or um, restored privileges, depending on the type of situation we're talking about, that, that those may not happen. Right. And they understand and accept that that's part of, the process of, of them repenting, right? That, uh, that this, yeah, that's this, a good this may point. be a long time and that, but the, as their own hearts change that they will recognize it too, that this is okay, that we have to wait, that, you know, I can't continue to, to hurt or be, put other people at risk. Um, but uh, so that said, you know, you're talking a lot between ambiguous loss, between these types of situations where, you have, may have forgiveness, but not, you can't come to reconciliation. You know, it's a lot of sitting in tension, right? Waiting for God to act, waiting for restoration, waiting for justice, waiting for repentance. Like, what encouragement would you give someone who's currently sitting in that tension? I really love the name that Joseph gave his youngest son, Ephraim. Um, and that came from the Hebrew for fruitful. And he says, because I've been fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I know post Mars Hill, I just wanted the conflict to end. I, and I couldn't envision, I had been really fruitful. I felt like in my ministry at Mars Hill. And so I thought my fruitfulness had come to a, a standstill an end. And I just wanted the affliction to end. I wanted reconciliation and movement and repentance to take place. And I could not envision being fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so that name that Joseph used was so helpful to me because it gave me a vision that prior to it, I didn't have at all that, oh, so so I can have a fruitful ministry, even if this place that I thought God had called me never fixes itself if these relationships never get better and it helped me to start looking for where god was at work then and stop sitting you know i'm not i don't mean wallowing you know i wanted repentance so i was hoping for repentance and there's nothing wrong with wanting that situation to be reconciled but it was so powerful for me to get a vision of the fact that i could still be fruitful even if mark never repented that the rest the fruitfulness of my life ongoing wasn't um, it didn't depend on leaders at Mars Hill doing what I, I thought they needed to or, you know, even in my marriage, I could still be fruitful, even though I'm in this position where that I don't want to be as, as a divorced woman. So I just love that name fruitful in the land of my affliction. It's beautiful. I, I really believe in it now, but early on, when I, I didn't understand that that could happen, that name was so helpful to me. Yeah, this this topic is something that comes up in our Facebook group a lot. So I think this book will be really helpful because the things that you're talking about while you're 
specific situations are unique to you. I think every person in life has these different situations where they're struggling to forgive, um, to understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and how to navigate it. So I highly recommend getting this book. I will link it in the episode notes. Wendy, thank you so much for for joining us. This was great and very encouraging. Thank you guys so much for having me. I always enjoy it.